Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy Veterans Day. Thank you to all of the time, effort, service, and devotion to our country by all of our amazing veteran listeners that are out there today. So incredibly grateful to allow all of us to have the freedom in which we do. So when I was putting together my Veterans Day episode, I could not think of a better guest to have than my best friend in the entire world. We grew up together, best man in my wedding, and just the most incredible human being that I know, Sean Lane, fighter pilot Sean Lane, who served a number of years uh, flying F-16s in the Air Force, and he is just incredible. His interview is awesome. You're going to get a lot out of it. And again, thank you so much to all of our veterans, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Fighter pilot Sean Lane. Obsessed with the Weather is brought to you by Birding Situate. Are you looking for an awesome outdoor, socially distant, and fun activity to get you through the wintertime blues? Well, join me and co-leader Liam Norton as we lead three wintertime trips around the south shore of Massachusetts looking for sea ducks and other amazing migrating birds. Our first trip is January 10th, 2021, and signups are open. To learn more and to sign up today, visit birdingsituate.com. That's B-I-R-D-I-N-G, situate.com, to find out more and get your birding experience started today. Everywhere he goes, people want to know what's the weather, so he tells them. He's obsessed with the weather, any type of weather. Obsessed. Hi, and welcome to the Obsessed with the Weather podcast. I'm your host, Steve McGuire. This podcast is coming to you from the home of some of the world's most diverse weather, Situate, Massachusetts. A reminder to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever you listen to your podcasts on, and visit obsessedwiththeweather.com to find out more information about today's show and other information about the weather. I have an awesome episode for you today in our Veterans Day edition, as I welcome my best friend from childhood to this day, best man in my wedding, and former Air Force fighter pilot, Sean Lane. As always, let's begin with our weather quiz. We're going to stay with the flying theme in our weather quiz today and ask a very simple question about how many planes a year get struck by lightning in the United States. So the question is simply, how many planes in the U.S. are struck by lightning over the course of one year? Again, uh, just awesome. Uh, Literally, my best friend growing up, we met in sixth grade, Mrs. Ireton's math class. I came in last to the classroom. The desks were paired up facing each other. There was only one open seat, and it was directly across from the person who now sits directly across from me today. So welcome to the show, former Air Force pilot, fighter pilot, Sean Lane. Biggest mistake of my life. Yes. Should have um, let you sit next to me. He definitely never should have let me sit next to me. <laughs> Thanks for uh, having me, Stephen. All right. It. Yeah, you got it. So you're going to hear um, me refer to Sean as Lano. So that has his, been his lifetime uh, nickname. He is Uncle Lano to my children. And uh, like I said, best man in my wedding. Just so happy to have him here. Um, we laugh often, so we had very different careers in college. 
Uh, Sean, where did you attend college? Can you tell us that? Tell everybody to get us rolling. I went to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Great. So Sean is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, and um, I went to school at a public institution up in New Hampshire, and I took a final exam, and Sean took a final exam, and my final exam as an education major was music in the elementary school, and I had to play three blind mice on an instrument called the auto harp and sing it to my class. And that took me all of about one minute for my final exam. And I think I called Sean and told him that, and you had just come out of, I think it was a four hour exam in each was about four hours in organic (laughs) chemistry, plasma physics, Excellent. A whole bunch of other fun stuff. And, and ironically, I think one the one you had just come out of was atmospheric thermodynamics, which is just awesome. Yeah, so, four plus hours of, of my brain melting. Probably a little bit different than the auto harp um, at Plymouth State University, but go Panthers. So um, Sean's been a big fan and supporter of my entire life, but also of uh, simply this podcast. So he knows what the first question is going to get us started. So Leno, tell our audience uh, where you grew up, all about kind of your childhood, where uh, that led to and your career now and what you do. And uh, we'll get to how the weather ties into all of that, because obviously you're going to have a ton of great stories given your uh, Air Force career. But take it away, Leno. I am totally biased. But yes, I'm very <laughs> excited that you're doing this podcast. This awesome. is awesome. This Good. is this is fantastic stuff. So so as you well know, though your listeners may not, uh, you and I grew up, uh, as you alluded to, in the same town of Burlington, Massachusetts, about 10, 12 miles northwest of Boston. So a little suburbia, uh, standard little you know, standard suburban neighborhoods, very middle to middle, lower class, uh, pretty modest, good old Irish Catholic family. Um, those were my beginnings, very humble, uh, very, you know, family focused, but very humble. So we went to school together there in Burlington High School. Um, everybody everybody has a different vision and things that they want to do. Uh, you will not remember this. I actually do to this day, and I know you'll tell me I'm crazy. Uh, but in 1986... Your mom took you and I to a movie at the Woburn Cinema Theaters. Classic. And we saw the movie Top Gun. Yes, we did. And as cheesy as that may be, I saw that movie and I knew from that point on that that's what I was going to do with my life. So as twisted as it was, everything I did from that point forward was focused on the goal of becoming a fighter pilot in the military. I hadn't yet decided whether it be Air Force Navy, uh, what it would be. But uh, in high school, obviously, uh, we played sports together. We went our separate ways. You alluded to, you went off to did the normal, normal thing and Quote went to unquote. college. Yeah. Right. We got to take a step back, though, and let everybody know. Prior to high school, you were definitely kind of a punk. Would you agree? Like, you were – like, we didn't know each other. We knew each other. Obviously, we met in sixth grade. But you definitely – you're obviously incredibly smart. You're the smartest person I know. But you also had a side to you that, like – was punky. Would you agree with that? Sure. I mean, first, whenever you say I'm the smartest person you know, it reminds me that you don't know many people, <laughs> which is fine. But yeah, I had a chip on my shoulder. Um, I think like a lot of folks, you know, a little Napoleon syndrome, rocking five, six, you know, <laughs> yep. probably about 20 pounds more than I should be now, but yep. a, a little tank. So yeah, I, I had a little chip on my shoulder. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. But that went away when it's so interesting. You, I remember this. I tell people this story that that went away when you got your for lack of a better term, you got your vision of what you wanted to do, 
and you became singly focused on that. So yeah, go for it. I, I think that's great to say. So not only did we enjoy math with Miss Ireton in sixth grade, <laughs> uh, we had a number of classes that I did not do very well in. So that I think yeah. that's a fair assessment through early middle school, sixth grade, I did not do well in school. I did not grasp a lot of the concepts well. I wasn't disciplined. I wasn't very focused. Uh, I don't know if part of that was the movie. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Uh, but all of a sudden I started seventh grade and it was straight A's from that point on. Unbelievable. Something, something clicked. Maybe it was just maturity. Who knows? Right. right. Uh, but, you know, so when you went off to New Hampshire, uh, I went off to the Air Force Academy. Uh, which is, for those who don't know, a four-year academic institution like any other college. You just happen to be full-time military and do full-time athletics as well. We could spend hours on this part of it, but like, it's can you just take people, give them kind of the two-minute version? Just even getting in is not an easy process. So can you take us a little bit through that? But like just being accepted to an academy is an incredible accomplishment. Sure. And, and maybe I share this from the perspective of those who are young and listening or who have kids who are listening and yeah, might want to go that route definitely. Uh, of the service academies. Uh, but it was a tremendous opportunity. I still say to this day, uh, being from a pretty poor family, zero political connections. If I didn't have the great guidance counselor I did, Al Wild, I probably would never have gone there. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, getting accepted into one of the service academies, they are considered, at least the Air Force Academy, I think Navy and, and West Point are pretty close behind, but it's a top 10 academic institution in the country. So you've got to have excellent grades. You've got to be extremely well-rounded, you know, sports and extracurricular activities and all of that. Uh, once you get that minimum hurdle, there's a whole bunch of physical hurdles you need to pass because uh, obviously they're looking for very healthy and fit people. And if you want to be a pilot like I did, vision's important. Uh, you can't be colorblind and a whole, whole host of other issues. Right. Um, there is a acceptance process, application acceptance process for the academies, which is run in parallel to a political nomination process you also have to go through. Amazing. So there are people who get accepted to one of the academies, but do not get a political nomination. Uh, it's very rare to get a political nomination and not get accepted because I think they, they're in cahoots. Uh, right. Having gone to the academy with kids that are senators' kids and astronauts' kids and I still, to this day, don't understand how I got in there. I think it was a mistake, but it, it worked out. No, but out. you got so, it. You got an appointment, right? I did. I, I you know, it, it's interesting. I, I won't get into politics. I ended, I ended up getting a, a nomination from both uh, Kennedy and uh, Markey, who Markey was a congressman at the time, now Amazing. a senator of Massachusetts. But incredible, yeah. And and Leno and I, Sean's referenced it a couple of times. Like we we joke now as we sit inside my home studio of my podcast. A piece about a quarter of a mile from the ocean. Like we grew up with nothing like, and, and to see, obviously life is not about things at all, but uh, to have opportunities like we have had in our life, given what we come from or how we grew up. Um, it's amazing to even just process all the stuff that we're even reflecting back and looking at. Yeah, our roots so, are so critical. And so, I don't, I don't regret it for a day. I'm so glad that, we had to work for everything we had and Agreed. our parents couldn't give us everything or a lot of things and yeah. force us to be tougher. Yeah, uh, no which doubt. Which was great. Uh, remind me to come back and tell you, I've got a little anecdote about uh, some fear of weather I had early on. It's probably my earliest weather memories. Great. But at the end of the day, I went to the Air Force Academy, was very blessed and lucky to do that. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the academies compared to most, and you can't see me making air quotes, normal colleges, 
whereas most universities, you typically have to get dean approval or permission to take more than, say, 16 or 18 semester credit hours, basically a course load of more than four or so classes. Uh, we had to have permission from the dean to take less than 24 semester credit hours. Wow. So typically at any one time, I was taking six to eight classes. <laughs> Um, you don't know what you don't know, so I had nothing to compare it to until I came home and visited you and watched you take your multiple-choice 10-question biology test. And- Hold on. Speaking of multiple-choice, can we talk about the SATs? Let's talk about the SATs. <laughs> we, we are going so far off the weather. What the hell? Doing. We'll get there. Let's talk about the SATs. So let's just say, given Sean's background academically, we took a very different approach to the SATs. Can you tell our listeners, just to throw me under the bus here— <laughs> Can you tell our listeners about the art? Because we were in the same room because of the alphabet. L and M, Lane and McGuire, were cl- were sat almost next to each other during the yeah. SATs. Can you oh, take us through that? The good old days. So, you know, I, having a perhaps different focus than you, <laughs> spent many months taking practice SAT tests, buying every book. I Well, couldn't even afford books, taking books out of the library. Doing all of this stuff, trying to do as best I could. I'd taken them like a few times because uh, I was trying to raise my score to be more competitive. Yeah, to get into the Air Force Academy. Yeah, right? I, you know, unfortunately, and it, it's not a – I try and be so humble, but looking back, like it's a it's a top 10 academic. Yeah. People don't realize that, so it typically competes. So you with, need to do well in the SATs. Yeah, it's a very important part. Again, they're looking for the big picture. But I remember this was probably the last time we took our SATs, and I, of course, was very focused but stressed and, you know, was – very mechanically going through all of the sections. Uh, you know, I, I think we were probably on whatever it was on the the verbal or math section, but I had finally taken like a breather on one of the questions just to collect myself. And I look over and, and Steven's face was so just stress-free. He was kind of almost like humming to himself. And I look down and he's got his pencil and he's just like, I swear to God, making a Christmas tree out of the, out of the bubbles. Cause it was all multiple choice. I had no uh, idea what was in front of me. No, no, it was fantastic. But you know, ultimately we all end up where we, where we want and need to be. But. And one of the joys of that story is not much has changed in 30 years. No, no. Uh, I've had to learn to be less stressed in life, which is good. So there's a, you know, oh. there's a reason for all of it. <laughs> Classic. All right, keep rolling. So uh, while you were finishing up your multiple choice biology tests and the auto harp uh, as your final, uh, you know, after four years there, you do come out with uh, Congress only a lot because my schooling was paid for, which I'm very grateful for uh, one degree, but I actually have the credit hours for a general engineering degree in addition to my business degree. Okay. So it, it sounds strange, People ask, uh, you know, don't you have to be an aeronautical engineer or, you know, an, an, an astronautical engineer to go off and be a pilot? No, I was a management major. Amazing. I was, I was an aeronautical engineering major for about six months, but then I realized, as much as I wanted to challenge myself. At every step of the level, you're being compared to all of your peers, athletically, academically, militarily. And at the end of those four years, it's a rack and stack. And there's, you know, Congress only a lot based on budget, so many pilot training slots. So I moved over to a business degree simply so I could get the best possible GPA. Not that it was by any means easy. In fact, if you leave the academies and transfer it to a normal college, they raise a point to your GPA and your wow. transfer paperwork. But was very lucky enough to do just well enough finishing the academy to get accepted into pilot training. Um, went off to a couple of years of pilot training, ultimately ended up flying F-16s in the Air Force for 10 years. Amazing. Uh, had a tremendous opportunity, lived in multiple countries all over the U.S., visited probably another 25 or 30 countries along the way. Uh, and here I am back in, uh, 
back in the good old Northeast part of the U.S. Your favorite state in the world, Massachusetts. Yeah, I did everything I wanted to do in my life uh, by the time I was 32. And since then, I've been trying to figure out what am I going to do when I grow up. I Amazing. No um, so the other thing of, of that, so obviously it's Veterans Day or we're going to be airing this on Veterans Day. Uh, on behalf of myself and all of our listeners, obviously, thank you for your service. Thank you. Very kind. I'm always um, embarrassed to hear that. No, I you. know. But you flew through through two Gulf Wars or one Gulf War? Uh, different parts of – so 2003, 2004 was Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yep. Um, and then – so in Iraq and Afghanistan, I deployed a couple of times. Amazing. And so um, you're, you're a wartime veteran, which is a thing. Um Obviously, given all your experience flying, you've seen every single type of weather. You are always my go-to person uh, when I go to travel. And if I, you know, we both kind of follow the weather together. Um, can you tell us a little bit? Let's let's kind of get into the big weather piece of what we're here for. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, 10 years in the air, you saw a lot of amazing stuff. You've seen things most humans will not see. I mean, let's be honest. Most people are not going to be in a multi-million dollar plane going like over a thousand miles an hour. I was about to say thousands of miles an hour, but that's a whole different plan. Um, but yeah, over I maxed out at about eighteen hundred miles an hour. Okay, so, so not quite thousands. All right, but, but close, right? So you know, you're breaking the sound barrier. You're doing all these things. Uh, can you take us through? You know, what's the prep look like? What's the pre-flight? Um, uh, you know, you and I have always kind of joked and not joked. The safest or the uh, the the most dangerous times of flying are the first ten minutes after you take off and the f last ten before you land. Like all those little things, can you just kind of take us through the life of a pilot and uh, you know things we should be concerned with as a passenger if we're you know as we get out there? So sure, uh, let me take a step backwards too because I want to talk about uh, it's like someone else I know. I had a very unhealthy fear of weather when I was a child. <laughs> Love it. So, oh yeah, uh, no, the, my listeners know I, <laughs> I I gave them that clear story in my intro. <laughs> so to support your point, and I shouldn't give you uh, fodder for this, but you know, back when I was a bit of a chip on my shoulder kind of punk, and this will probably explain how I addressed it. But I used to be petrified when there were particularly summer thunderstorms, and the sound, the thunder was raging, and you could see. I was petrified. Um, I got over that probably a, <laughs> at a age of 10, 11. Like normal know. people. Yeah. I There was like a torrential downpour outside. There was lightning cracking everywhere. I was sick of being afraid of it. And in a moment of anger, I picked up a steel rake and I held it up in the air and I screamed as loud as I could. That's not- And healthy. you went outside. And that's how I got over my fear of lightning. Yeah. I was outside. Like I should have been struck by lightning based if you watch Caddyshack. Right. I wasn't. I just- But that was my way of telling the world, you know- there's definitely a name for that. I'm not smart enough to know what the name of therapy is. It's immersive <laughs> Immers therapy. Immersion therapy. Yeah, I, I like, don't know. I certainly couldn't afford. You're a afraid of snakes, so throw them in a snake pit. Like I don't yeah. know what that is, but I guess self-diagnosed and self-cured. Right. But, uh, so you know my interaction with the weather, let's say, started very early. But to your point, you know, as a pilot, not just a military pilot, uh, but really aviation in general. 
is very weather dependent. So whether you've ever flown on a commercial aircraft or, you know, for me having been in the military, one of the first classes or courses we take in pilot training is literally like meteorology one-on-one. The basics. Yeah. I mean, because, but, but the point is it's so fundamental to safely flying, whether you're in training or uh, in combat, you just have to understand the weather. Every squadron, whether it was a tra- training squadron or a combat squadron, we have meteorologists embedded with us. Okay. Before every single flight, whether it's in training or combat, we get weather you know briefings on everything. So weather does become a pretty darn critical aspect uh, of everything we do in flying. So simple things like uh, temperature. So you know, I went to school in Colorado. The Air Force Academy is at seven thousand two hundred fifty-eight feet above sea level. So at higher altitudes, you know, when you get into density altitude and higher temperatures, you have less available thrust taking off in an aircraft. So those are important things you need to know when you're way down on a, in a fighter aircraft with a lot of heavy munitions and you're taking off in a, you know, in the middle East and it's the middle of summer and it's 114 degrees, you need two mile runways to get airborne. So those kinds of things are very critical. A lot of accidents, both in the Military and in the, in the private sector happen because people have misjudged altitude and how long it would take for them to get airborne and things like that. Crazy. So yeah, to your point, um, you know, I used to joke around with you for the first five minutes of the flight when you take off and probably the last five minutes before you land. That's when you need to worry if you're going to worry at all okay. because uh, things like wind shear. You yeah, know, wind shear is a critical element where. Because you have a differential and pressure gradients, all of a sudden you could be flying to land the aircraft and at a, you know, 250 miles an hour in the aircraft I was going at, we measure everything in knots, but I'll just put it in miles per hour. And that shift wind shear could cause the airplane to drop 300 feet in a, in a second, or it could cause your airspeed to change drastically in a fraction of time where you could literally now stall the aircraft and fall out of the air. So things like that are – we take it for granted when you're flying, right. but literally elements of the weather impact us all the time. Um, I was stationed in Japan for three years. Very very similar climate to New England. Yep. Uh, loved it in the winter. Lots of snow. Uh, taking off in – Cold conditions is fantastic. You have lots of extra available thrust. It makes the aircraft perform uh, very well, but icing becomes a pretty significant issue. All right. So, so, all right. So I'm sure there's no doubt with all the listeners that we have, there's people that have been on an airplane. It's wintertime. You know, you're finally getting ready to take off. You've been delayed forever. And then the captain comes on and is like, we have another 30 minutes for (laughs) icing. And everyone's like, no, kill me now. Yeah. Uh, and we see these guys come out with these guns and wash it down and think, how the hell is that going to do anything at, you know, 30,000 feet? Take, can you take us through that process? And is that actually a thing and yeah. safe? And Well, de-icing is a thing. So they're basically spraying some form of glycol or another antifreeze on the aircraft. Okay. So the, the, the important issue is why is icing even a, an issue for aircraft? Right. So it, the vast majority of aircraft fly on principles of lift. Lift is based on the shape of the wing, the camber of a wing. Yep. Uh, I won't get into all of that fun physics because half of it I don't remember. But when you have icing, clear icing, rime icing, this yep. really thick, dark icing that builds up in the wing, it literally changes the shape of the wing. Huh. And that okay. can change the ability of the wing to produce the lift. It's not about the weight of the ice. Okay. It's about the shape of the wing. Fascinating. So whether you're on a you know 737 with uh, you know Southwest or you're in an F-16, they do come out and spray and de-ice when certain environmental conditions exist. Right. Now, 
Sometimes, to your point, how long does it stay on the aircraft? Uh, obviously, as you go up in altitude, the temperature gets colder, the adiabatic lapse rate, you know, roughly Hold two on. Degrees. What, the what? Tell us what you just said. Lano talk. Lano talk. There's a concept that I'm sure many of you are familiar with called the adiabatic lapse rate. Uh, it's, it's a concept basically explaining that as you go up in altitude, the temperature drops. Got it. At a pretty consistent clip for up to about 36,000 feet, and after that, it starts to level out. Okay. But, you know, so while it may be 40 degrees on the ground while you take off, you could very quickly, you know, when you're at 36 or uh, the aircraft I flew had a, a ceiling of 50,000 feet. You couldn't go in any higher at 50,000 feet. But at 50,000 feet in the winter, it could be minus 60 Fahrenheit. Wow. Okay. So having those chemicals in the plane are not a, a cure-all. Uh, you know, we also, all commercial aircraft, as well as most military aircraft, also have de-icing tools that are on there and heated uh, pitot tubes and other things. Because the big issue is, one, your instruments can freeze up, and now you can't determine airspeed uh, or altitude. Those instruments can ice up. And then more importantly, if you literally change the shape of your wings, you can lose the ability to produce the lift you need under given airspeeds and you could stall. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget, maybe 10 years ago, there was there was an, one, some airline had an aircraft in like Buffalo, New York, oh, yeah. literally fell out of the sky yep. into a neighborhood. And yeah, super sad. Yeah, it was all based, unfortunately, uh, on severe icing on the plane that yeah. caused it to not be able and to there, Yeah, they were landing in a snowstorm too. It was very, and it was a small plane. It was young, inexperienced yeah. pilots, they said, was... Part of it, sad. I for suspect them. flying is a lot like driving. You're you're very safe when you start off because you're paying attention to everything. You're safe as you get older because you're wise and look right. back at all the mistakes you made in your life. But it's those middle years where you get a little overconfident. And, yeah, you know. So sometimes being just slightly experienced can be worse than being brand new. Can you talk? You you talked a little bit about Japan, and um, I do remember distinctly you talking about the fog in Japan. Can oh, sea fog. Yeah. yeah. So in Japan, that? the runway. The end of the runway, it ran east and west, and picture it being, uh, you know, for those of us here on the South Shore, picture it being, uh, you know, Marshfield or Situate, like put that runway at the har- in the harbor and Situate, and the end of the runway is about 150 feet from the water. Got it. So, you know, as you know, fog is created when you have got, and I'm going to go backwards, either cold, warm air and cold land or vice versa. Yep. So we would have a lot of times where, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and there was just sea fog that rolled in. You literally had zero visibility you couldn't do anything and it would eventually burn off, but sometimes it would roll in in the middle of the day while we were out training. Fog is tough to predict. I mean, you can model it and, yep. and forecast it some, but there are plenty of times I had to divert instead of going back to the base uh, we were at in Japan. We had to land 10 miles away just because very regional fog rolled in out of nowhere. Crazy. And if there isn't enough wind to move it, it's you know, it yeah, just sits there. It's going to stay it's gonna there. It's going to stall. Right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of those weather experiences, can you take us through a couple of, you know, you talked about extreme heat, really cold. Uh, take us through a couple uh, of your just wildest, either like, wow, this is really scary. Oh, my goodness. Or, wow, this is really cool. This is amazing. Uh, some of those experiences, again, that most of us will never have. Sure. Uh, you know. Everything we do, like I said, we've got meteorologists embedded. Even when you take off in the morning for training, you're getting the forecast for the day um, because all the plane can see through the weather. But the humans, we are the weak element. So at the end of the day, they set certain 
every pilot based on their experience has different, what we call minimums, how low of a ceiling and how short of visibility they are allowed to take off and land in. And that's based per pilot. Yeah. It's wow. individualized based on your that's experience. Cool. Now they have some standard buckets, uh, you know, by the end of my career and this, these numbers won't mean anything to anyone being a more experienced pilot. I could land with, the ceiling being low is 300 feet. So either broken or overcast at 300 feet yep. uh, and visibility down to, I think it was one mile, uh, which sounds like a lot, but when you're landing at 250 miles an hour and it's a mile <laughs> and a half runway, <laughs> right? you know, the, the whole runway is only a mile and a half long. So if your visibility is a, under a mile, you can't even see the other end of the runway. Yeah, that's land. no good. So, you know, that kind of stuff we dealt with all the time. You, as a military pilot, as just with almost any commercial pilot, you have to learn, it becomes part of your training to fly on instruments. So nowadays, a lot of things are GPS guided. The planes can pretty much not. So, well, the military is more dependent on the pilot, but, you know, commercial airliners, they can pretty much take off. The autopilot takes off and can land. It doesn't see weather. It doesn't care. Got it. Um, but for those of us that were, you know, like me, dealt with it all the time, um, I can probably count, well, let, let's say greater than five times. I know that I've been struck by lightning. Oh, my flying. goodness. It's very anticlimactic in most cases when it happens. Okay. But you'll land and the maintenance crews will identify like a pinhole burn hole in the plane. Really? Yeah. So, you know, the, it often can go. Did you do, did you know it? Uh, a couple of times I think I did know it because I was in the weather. We have a term when you're flying called Popeye, you can relate to air traffic <laughs> control when they're like, Hey, look to your left. There's an aircraft three miles away. And you can back go, Hey, we're Popeye. It just means you're in the cloud. You can't see anything visually. Okay. We've got radar systems and other tools we can use. Uh, but I've been in the clouds seeing lightning flashing all around, you know, again, Crazy. it can screw up all of your instruments. If you get struck by lightning, it can fry things literally as that electric current goes through. So the other part of that too, that I think is you think about an F-16, if like, if you know, uh, and for our listeners here, I'll put up a picture. Sean's going to send me some pictures. He doesn't know this yet, but some pictures of him and his plane and things like that. But you're, so go, let's go back to Top Gun for lack of a better term. You have a clear canopy. Is that correct? I do. So right. this so, is a single seat aircraft. I got no goose in the back seat. It's just me. Got it. All right. So it's just you. Oh my goodness. So you're in it by yourself with a clear canopy and a lightning storm around you. Oh yeah. And I haven't even gotten to the fun stuff yet. Oh, so this my is goodness. just pretty typical because now in general, you don't want to fly through thunderstorms. Correct. You don't want to fly over thunderstorms right. because convective cells, the lightning and all yep. of that, which is kind of cool in a scary way. But when you're flying in a very electrically charged right. cloud, the lightning can actually originate from the plane it, and then go to the cloud. So you're you, in a giant chunk of metal. Yes, exactly. Which so is kind of scary, but it's, it's, you know, we'll get to your, I don't know the answer to your weather quiz, but it's not uncommon at all for aircraft to be struck by lightning and not even know it. Uh, so Amazing. it does happen quite often, you know, with the good thing is you're in the air and you're not grounded. I suspect most civilian aircraft, just like military aircraft, we had all of them have a thing called static wicks. Yep. So on the on the trailing edge of the wings, there are wicks that are designed to help take that electricity if it comes in through electric charge and basically discharge it safely without you grounding yourself out. Got it. Uh, I do have some pretty intense, probably I wouldn't say nightmares, but I had strange dreams about for years. Uh, I remember in two thousand three. We were deployed in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, we were flying out of Qatar, country called Qatar, 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 yep. however you want to pronounce okay. it. Okay, Q U A T A R. Uh, Q A 
T A R. Yeah. So well, hold on. Who scored better on the SAT? Well, I, <laughs> that'll be you. It, it is what it is. So, um, <laughs> but uh, they pronounce it over there gutter. Got uh, it. Which sounds like a gutter on your house. I call it cutter. <laughs> Roger uh, that. But it looks like Qatar without the U. <laughs> okay. So uh, you know, flew out of there for for a few months. The the very opening days of uh, of that whole exercise over there, that war. Um, would fly north every night. I was on the night train, so I was flying at night, NVGs. NVG means? Night vision goggles. Got it. Um, okay, so you're flying in your F-16 alone wearing night vision goggles, and you did the – what's a what's a – uh, time frames like AM, PM to AM. Or? So I am not. You know me. I am not a night person. I'm yep, not. And no. circadian rhythm is very critical. Your body can only adjust about an hour a day. But because I was one of the few pilots uh, in the squadron that were night vision combat certified, <laughs> I got stuck flying the night train. So classic. Now again, we're talking about combat and war, and I don't want to belittle any of this. No, um, this is. I'm sorry. I apologize no, 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 I don't, for I don't laughing. Mean, I know. I'm no, trust me. I, if you don't war, laugh but, about it, it's 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 uh, you get too hung up on kind of the stuff. So a lot of this is is kind of funny to me. But again, we are talking about veterans. So I stop me if I get too humorous. No, not at all. Um, but you know, I, even though I'm alone on my plane, we typically fly with. In a, in a formation, I say a formation, with it, we always have the buddy system, for Got lack it. of a better term. You yep. always have a wingman, whether it's two aircraft or four aircraft, and that's for tactical reasons yep. uh, and how we deploy and can look out for each other. But, you know, flying from Qatar, we would typically take off, fly about two hours north to the uh, Iraqi border with Saudi Arabia. We would air refuel. We'd, we'd plug into a big plane, take on a whole bunch of gas. Wow. We would go off and do our thing uh, in different parts of Iraq, typically come back to the tanker, who's what we call the big gas station in the sky, take on some more gas. Uh, if we still had munitions remaining to support the troops on the ground, we'd go back and do what we needed to do. Well, on one of these nights, and this was my second night flying um, in theater in Iraq, so still trying, you know, think about when you move in your life and you go to a new neighbor, you don't know where the local grocery store is, yeah. the schools, the roads. So this is my second night flying, you know, in the Middle East, having done it years prior, uh, but this was the first time really in combat. Um, coming out of Iraq, heading back home, um, apparently the the base that we were stationed at down in Qatar called Al-Udid Air Base uh, had a big weather event, you know, clouds rolled in, whatever the issue was. Yep. So we were directed to another base to try and land, uh, another, you know, military st- base. Uh, that one was socked in with weather, had to find an aircraft tanker to take on some gas so we didn't run out of fuel. So. Yeah. You start to get what we call the pucker factor. Um, think of your seat cushion and sucking yep. up seat cushion. Um, so now getting very low on fuel, we end up diverting to a base in Kuwait, which I've never been to, Jabber Air Base, Al-Jabber. How far um, away from here, where you took off from? Oh, I don't know, 500 miles, 600 oh. miles. So, oh, man. So I've now been airborne for eight or nine hours. I'm flying, taking off at about eight o'clock at night, typically landing six or seven in the morning. I'm not a night person. Yeah. Um, whole nother conversation, but we do get prescribed medication. I was going to say like, you got to get jacked up. Well, it's all controlled substances, but you literally (laughs) are issued military grade amphetamines to help keep you awake. Go pills. Okay. Uh, Conversely, we have pills to help you adjust your skating rhythm and sleep when you need to sleep. Um, Oh, better life through chemistry. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so nighttime, exhausted, been flying now, coming to a different base than we took off from. You know, if you if you think a picture being in your car at night, we've got charts on our legs that we're trying to figure out maps. 
so we can plug in the right coordinates, go to the right base. As we start to approach this base, um, it's nighttime. I'm on NVGs. We're in the weather. So now we're flying instruments, which is just a lot more exhausting. Yep. Uh, a sandstorm rolls in. So in the Mideast, these things called haboobs. Yep. Um, very common, typically after thunderstorms. Makes sense to me now. I didn't realize why it came about. Um, but the base, we were, a sandstorm had rolled in, and now the conditions at that base were what we call zero, zero, zero visibility, zero ceiling, <laughs> which you can't land in. Right. Like you'd smack the ground before you'd see anything. Um, so we kind of circle for a little bit, but now we're running out of fuel, and there's no tanker around to take gas. The gas is on the ground. you got to land. So while this is going on and we're, we have no, we can't, we don't have enough fuel to make it to any other base. So we're either landing here or we're not landing. Um, this base in Kuwait comes under attack from surface to surface missiles from Iraq. They always assume everything that were to hit is, could be chemical. So now the runway shuts down, the base shuts down. We can't talk to the tower. We can't talk to anyone because they're all taking cover, not knowing what's going on. Uh, my wingman and I basically, decide, all right, we're going to create our own instrument approach and land, or we're going to have to punch out and give the aircraft back to the taxpayers, which I would, didn't want to do. Right. But at night in the weather, meaning your solid weather in the clouds, then the sandstorm rolls in. Um, visibility was, we were last told essentially zero. Um, there was no, there was a ceiling of 200 feet before the, before the sandstorm. I was abs- Now I'm in the weather getting what we call spatial D, spatial disorientation. Uh, it messes with your vestibular system, your inner ear. You can't tell left from right. You, the aircraft feels like it's leaning one way or the Ugh. other. So this is one of the scariest scenarios I've ever had in my flying life where I said, I'm either, if I don't land right now, I won't have the gas to go around and try again. So I'll just have to bail out of the aircraft. I'll have to pitch my nose up and Luckily, through the grace of God, and I'm sure a bunch of other minor miracles, you know, like the sandstorm kind of blows through right as I'm probably on two-mile short final and we're able to land. Now, we had to land and pull off the runway, and then our aircraft both ran out of fuel. No one could come out and get us because they were all hiding, wondering if they were being attacked or not. Wow. Um, we we don't fly in our jets with chemical gear. We do have it in training, but yep. you don't have it in the plane because you don't expect to land somewhere where they could be under attack. So that was – that was one of those uh, life shortening wow. kind of moments that had a that's whole bunch cr- of weird weather phenomena. That's crazy. I and I've I've of all the years we've known each other, I've never heard that story. Are you um so I'm just curious from a military standpoint, like and if you can't tell I'm sure we have a couple I thought we may have a couple moments where we'd have to give the classic line of I can tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Um <laughs> is there do you have a gun? Like, like, so say like you land, you have to get out of the plane. Like highly related to the weather. Yes. We, okay. Yeah. So when, when like you, some people, when, I, my listeners definitely want to know that. Like if you got out yeah, of the plane, could you defend hours. yourself? Um, in a very mild manner. So when you're flying a, you know, a combat aircraft, pretty much anyone, when you're in the, in theater, meaning when you're in a combat zone, you, you know, in a small aircraft like ours, I'm the, attached to my survival vest, uh, is a, is a handgun. Got it. So you know, if I'm not going to take on an Iraqi tank, I'm not going to have much luck. Correct. But, uh, but yeah, you, you are provided with some some ability to defend yourself. But Crazy. in this case, it was more the ground was going to kill me. I was convinced I was either going to smack the ground at 500 miles an hour because right. I couldn't tell which way it was up. That's or, unbelievable. And so what was the landing like? Did he, Was it a soft landing? Did you? Oh, who knows? I mean, anytime the wheels touch the ground after that, you're, you're just happy. Right? Yeah. Like, I didn't even care if I had gas as long right. as I rolled clear of the runway and oh, didn't get run over. Crazy. So, I mean, those kind of things you just don't forget. And, and that literally, when you think about it, really, I mean, I had people shooting at me all night long trying to kill me every 
every night. But right. this was scarier than that. That's cra- and that was all weather related, hundred yeah. percent. Like, and that's the that's the interesting part. Is there was there any kickback or pushback to the ground meteorologist? Was anybody like, hey? Why didn't we not know this was going to happen? If this were peacetime, probably. But, you know, you're literally landing. You're handing over the tapes. We record everything we do that records any munitions you dropped. And you're off to go to bed because you're waking up eight hours later to Got do it, it all over again. Now, in this case, I don't know, and I still don't know to this day, you know, how predictable sandstorms are. I mean, I know they can come up after thunderstorms. Right. The weather <laughs> – as strange as it sounds, like the initial night of combat operations was planned around the weather. As the U.S. military has some some technology advantages that allows us to conduct combat operations in the weather. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it also hinders your ability to do things you can do when you can look around in the clear day. But you know what? If you're hunkered down in a, in a hole in the ground in Iraq, um, it's <laughs> probably good for us to make sure they know it doesn't matter whether it's cloudy or nighttime right. or daytime. Right. Know, if, if you're doing something bad, we're coming for you. Yeah. Crazy. Now, a couple of nights later, this was the same deployment, same thing, flying out of Qatar, going up, do what I need to do for eight or nine hours in Iraq, come out of Iraq, hit the tanker to pick up fuel and start heading back home, got a two hour flight. Well, all the local bases are socked in with weather, but we can't fly really low. So the, 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 the socked in weather now goes from about 4,000 feet up to about 40,000 feet. Crazy. So, and it's all thunderstorms. Got it. So okay. you don't want to fly in a thunderstorm. Right. What time of year was this now again? I don't remember. Uh, uh, March, March okay. 19th, 20th. So we're talking March, April. Yeah. This was probably the end of March, okay. early April at the latest yep. when this, these particular events were going on. Um, so another thing, you don't want to fly through thunderstorms. You, that's why if you fly commercial, you often hear them talk about diverting around a thunderstorm. Yep. Sorry, it's going to take a little longer. Great. Uh, inconvenience, you know, and great for all of us when we're just flying to Vegas or something, right? Right. But it, there's uh, a good, you know, it's a great quote that you don't, you can't fly if you're dead. You know, well, like, so. So going through the thunderstorm, that's bad. Yeah. Um, right. And I have, you know, I have a young, well, not young, but I have a wingman who's younger than me that I'm responsible for his life. I got to make sure I make decisions and, and get us both back home. Yep. But we had no other option here other than to do what would normally be considered a cardinal sin, and that was to fly above a thunderstorm. So I flew with my wingman at 49,500 feet because so, 50,000 feet are legal limit for the aircraft. Come on. Not that you blow up at 50,000 feet, no. but above that, you know, you're at risk of whatever. So another pucker factor night, both of us flying now, peacefully coming home, quiet, the the war is behind us 500 miles, but flying at close to 50,000 feet above a thunderstorm for about 150 miles, hoping to God you don't get sucked down with, you know, with downdrafts or any of that uh, kind of Did stuff. you, that's, that's just unbelievable that you had to go above it. I mean, you didn't have a choice. Well, we couldn't, we, we can't fly in a thunderstorm. That would be more dangerous. Can't go under it because you want to 4,000 get... feet, we wouldn't have enough fuel. So just like a car, when you know, at least old carbureted cars, when you fly at higher altitude or yeah, drive, you your burn fuel less. lasts longer. Oh, fascinating. Kind of like okay. my golf swing when I learned to golf in Colorado <laughs> Springs at 7,000 feet. The ball could, went further. And could hit the ball 300 plus yards. I thought that was normal until that... my next assignment was Pensacola on the beach. And I was down to like 250 and like, what happened? I don't know. That, that's amazing. None <laughs> of it straight, but much different. Um, but how about this? So you're way up there that high, right? Did you happen to see sprites? Do you know what a sprite I is? I don't. What's a sprite? So sprites are these lightning bolts that 
come up from a thunderstorm and uh, they're in multiple. We di- could see what I at the time described as cloud to cloud lightning. Okay. That's around, a little different. Yeah. These, these come up like literally look, they, they call them sprites. They look like, I'll put this on the, on the uh, link to our discussion today. Uh, they look like uh, basically claws of lightning coming up from the top of a thunderstorm. You know what? Yeah. This was another, point, you're probably this was like, another night where I was so focused yeah. on <laughs> not returning the jet to the taxpayers. Was um, it just you two? In my flight, yes. Yeah. So Got I was it. only responsible for the two of us. I'm sure other aircraft had to do the same thing. Right. Because, but it's, unfortunately, it's combat and a lot of the things that would not, combat isn't safe. So, right. but I didn't want to have that, you know, <laughs> like I just survived Iraq and then I die in a thunderstorm. Yeah. My right? biggest fear of coming back home after the military is that I was going to step off a curb and get hit by a bus. Right. Like, after all that yeah. being shot at. If I'm going to go down, else. I'm going to go down in a ball of flames. I'm not right. going to get hit by a bus or sucked into a, a thunderstorm. Right. So obviously that worked out. <laughs> Right. Um, in, in peacetime, I would have been in a lot of trouble. I would have had to explain myself to commanding officers and I, you know, would have been in trouble, but unfortunately you just do what you got to do to get home. What was the feedback? Like, obviously you had to tell them you did that or they, um, they knew that from the planes recording or whatever. So AWACS, it is like- the airborne warning control center, we have airborne air traffic combat controllers. They know where we're at. They know, you know, we had to communicate what we were doing and they were wondering why the heck we were so high, right? you know, but just there weren't any other options. Got it. You know? well, Got it. And there may have been, but to this day, I don't know what they were. But yeah. you know, when you're under that much stress, yeah. it's, you know, you focus on, okay, fly the plane first, be safe, you know, right. communicate later. Great. So lots of stories like that. But, you know, there's there's also cool stuff to it. I remember being deployed to Alaska for exercises where we do war gaming and fly each other. But flying in Alaska at night. So first of all, what I didn't mention is anytime you're in night vision goggles, NVGs, yeah. it obviously amplifies the available light, some ridiculous X-fold depending on how the quality one. So you can see every star in the sky. You'll see shooting stars continuously. You'll see things that you don't normally pick up with the naked eye. Crazy. Because it's just there. Um, but seeing the Aurora Borealis in, in Alaska Stop at it. night from oh 40,000 feet. Come on. You, it's just, I mean, it was everything like you see on TV. It was so cool. Most Everything I saw was mostly greenish. But, right. And I know this is more of an atmospheric magnetic field issue no, and less but weather. No, but still amazing. <laughs> what um what time of the year? It was winter. It was amazing. Winter. I, don't, I just remember there being snow on the ground. Um, and so what does uh, even like, you know, does the snow illuminate? Because snow is a reflective surface. Um, yes. So, I mean, with night vision goggles, the snow itself, just like if you're a skier or a snowboarder, yeah. the reason you wear goggles, you can literally burn out your retinas from the sun reflecting oh, yeah. off of us. So, so freshly fallen snow is the number one most reflective surface of sunlight. I it is. would never have guessed. It, it's uh, it, it on a beautiful snowpack. It reflects. I teach my meteorology kids this. It reflects can fl- reflect up to forty percent of the sunlight that hits it. So it's incredible. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a ton, right? That's a high reflection so, rate. So, so can- even at night, if it is a clear night, so if you don't have an overcast ceiling above you, and now, in a, particularly if it's a high moonlight evening, right. it actually, in some ways, makes it difficult to use night vision goggles because Crazy. it becomes too bright. Seeing the snow on the ground reflect up, you know, can be very uh, can complicate that as well. So, you know, I can't ever remember even being briefed on the concern of the reflective snow and NVGs, but I know it was an issue. Right. Yeah. What were you, did you give that feedback or is that a thing or like, um, probably not because when you're a young, cocky, arrogant fighter pilot, it's just like, you know, you're, Hey, I just did what I needed to do. Right. You know, but looking back, it'd be nice to go, Hey, wouldn't it be nice if we learned from this? Love it. Yeah. 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 That's good. Um, all right. So take us through. So, you know, 
you obviously being in charge of so much of what you did and, um, you know, the flight piece that you were part of, can you take us through, we talked a little bit about being just the general public being passengers on a plane, uh, things to be, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. Is there any condition where you're like, all right, this is the most concerning thing you should be concerned about if you're either a commercial p- uh, passenger or, you know, like what's your, what's kind of your red flag? Well, back when the world was normal and we could travel, you know, I travel quite a bit for work and I'm right. on JetBlue all the time. Okay. So for me, the biggest concern was whether or not I could get Fox News or ESPN up on the TV because <laughs> yeah. I didn't really care about the rest of it. I figured I've gotten to a point in my life where if I couldn't control it, I wasn't worried about it. Right. But as we kind of joked, well, you know, I say joked about, but for those who aren't comfortable with flying. Yeah, the there's reality, a lot of people that don't no, like it's, to fly. It's very normal. I mean, the reality is, is flying is, I know it's just a statistic, but it's much safer than driving. You are a hundred or a thousand times more likely to die in a car crash than you have a wheel in a plane. Uh, the problem is people typically statistically walk away from car crashes, right. but it's tougher to walk away from a plane impacting the earth at a thousand miles an hour. True. But, you know, I think the biggest, we're most, and I, and I say this, it'll become obvious to folks. The vast majority of accidents happen in the first few minutes after takeoff or the first few minutes before landing because planes don't blow up in the air. They don't blow up. So almost every accident ends up ultimately happening when you impact a very hard object called the earth (laughs) traveling at high, you know, for whatever reason causes that. So when you're close to the ground, things like wind shear, like we talked about, when you have those inversions or micro blasts, anything that can shift the change in the airspeed. Well, if that happens, bird strikes, bird strikes, Sully, very common. Also an Air Force Academy grad landed in the Hudson. Um, You know, you have a whole flock of birds that blow out one of your or two or three of your four engines. They even they can't keep flying. Right. Um, So, you know, but people don't think of birds. Well, it's also very environmentally migratory seasons are, you know, very much related to the weather uh, and populations move and shift at certain times of the year. A lot of airports actually have. In addition to a lot of technology, they often will have dogs that are trained to run around the runways and clear, you know, birds out of the really and stuff. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Very interesting. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, I think once you, you know, probably when you're five minutes after takeoff, you're probably good for the rest of the flight until you're ready to land. Love but it. Again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. The reality no. is flying is vastly more safer than driving because you got a little bit of the big sky theory going on. You got objects that are separated until you get into that terminal area like LaGuardia or Boston or any place where you're landing a whole bunch of aircraft at one time for the vast majority of the time, you're not near any other planes. Great. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up with this, um, this kind of big question picture or this big picture question. Um, so you got out of the military, uh, you know, you did some family care stuff you needed to take care of. Um, what's your favorite type of weather now and why? Uh, I don't know if you'd classify, it's more of a season than weather. I love the fall. As you know, when I, I still to this day don't like the heat. I don't mind the sun. You love the beach, I heard, too. I, uh, a huge beach I, I don't at all <laughs> mind the sun when it's 45 degrees out. It's very it's very comforting. Got it. But I you know, I just love the fall as the season changing and the air starts to cool off. And obviously, if you're in New England, you get spoiled with the foliage and all that changing. Um, you know, environmental and weather impacts have kind of changed some of those time frames. And right. Like this coming, well, depending on when you air this, uh, you know, we'll probably have already turned back our clocks by the yep. time you listen to this. But that's another piece of this I got to keep track of. But I, I'm a huge fan of fall. Um, you know, I think we're going to get a little snow this week. Even I, I yep. love those early snowstorms. 
because it's just it, my favorite season is whatever the next one is. Love yeah, it. Two months into whatever season, I'm ready for the next one. Love I like it. The change. That's so good. And and uh, what drew you? What, you know, we live obviously in a, in a big coastal place. Um, you know, being right on the ocean. Um, do you like the ocean? You're a fan of the ocean? Um, uh, I, I like the ocean. As you alluded to, I'm not a beach person. I'm not a sit in the sand and bake like a clam kind of person. Got um, it. I, if I had my druthers, I'd be living in northern New Hampshire or Alaska. Uh, I'd be it. fine. Every time I turn on the TV and watch like um, Alaska, the last frontier, I yeah. could just watch it for hours. I'd love to go do that. So that probably explains a little bit about, one, you know, the kind of weather I like and, two, how little I like other people. <laughs> Love it. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't mind the ocean at all. I, I, you know, like everyone else, when I moved to the South Shore, I got into boating for a little while and threw away a whole bunch of money trying to do that. And I thought, all right, this is cool, but I'll leave that to other folks. Fair enough. So. That's good. So I always love to give my guests an opportunity to let folks reach out uh, to get in touch. Best way to reach out to you, Sean? Uh, if folks are interested in getting in touch with me, I will get in touch with them. <laughs> Sean, Sean Lane. I will find them. <laughs> Sean Lane in a nutshell, everybody. I love it. Uh, love you, brother. Absolutely. Good job. That was awesome. Um, this so, weather quiz, man. Uh, you've got my brain going. I've been thinking about it. Uh, so here we go. The uh, weather, weather quiz again. Uh, happy Veterans Day. Before we do that to all of our veterans. And, and thank you so much for doing that. I, I'm always embarrassed as a veteran. First of all, I always laugh because I've never had Veterans Day off. I was walking Veterans Day. Um, but the fact that folks are willing to recognize that, it's not because I was in the military and I think no, people I should. I, I get embarrassed. I got to do exactly what I wanted to do. I loved it. Like I said, I'd done everything I wanted to do in the military. And at 32, I had to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> right. But thank you for, you know, oh, for yeah. the show tied Kidding to me? Like, and, and to all of our veterans out there, thank you for your service and for allowing us to do the things we're doing now, like even our podcast here. So um, great. So Sean will be in touch with you on his behalf. I'll find you. He'll find you. And, and you can take that any way you want it. Um, so the, it's answer time for our quiz question. Again, staying with our flying f theme, how many planes a year get struck by lightning in the United States is the question. And I always love to let my guests give it a shot. Leno, what do you got? Well, one, it's good that nobody knows what I do for a living and nobody knows how to contact me. So I can pretty <laughs> much answer how I want. I, you know, I was honestly thinking about this. I thought I read a statistic once that said, you'd think commercial aircraft, they're probably struck once a year. And I figure there's probably 2,500 to 3,000 commercial aircraft, probably about that same amount out in the private world, military. My guess is if, if we actually had the ability to track down and identify, because I think a lot of lightning strikes probably aren't even noticed, I'd say it's a really high number. I'm going to say I'm going to say 10,000 a year. All right. Good guess. But I have no idea. So the answer is, and you were close, uh, about 7,000 planes a year are struck by lightning, which is kind of horrifying. Like. Yeah, but um, I know I'm right because there's at least 3,000 they didn't identify. <laughs> they didn't find that pinhole. That's correct. It, but, is, but that also tells you that most of the time it happens, people don't even realize. So it. is the pinhole – now I'm anxious about the pinhole. You, is the you pinhole, can Google it and go look it up, but no, there but will like, be should, literally a burn hole. I know, but wing. like should they fix that? Like, <laughs> they do if they catch it. I mean it's not going to drastically well, change the aerodynamics. How do you fix that? What do you put on it? Like, a little Band-Aid or some duct tape. <laughs> Perfect. Whatever works for them. So – uh, that's great. So, uh, again, Sean Lane, everybody, um, you can reach out to him um, in no way possible. Uh, he'll reach out to you. 
Uh, again, we'll have links on there and we'll take it uh, from there. So thank you so much for joining me this week. You can find out more about today's show as well as upcoming episodes by visiting obsessedwiththeweather.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever you listen to your podcasts on. And again, obsessedwiththeweather.com and let your friends know about this podcast as well. And I hope you have an awesome week.